This episode is brought to you by our wonderful patrons. If you enjoy the Coffee and Cocktails podcast, make sure to like, subscribe, and become a patron starting at one pound per month. By supporting the show, you get access to ad-free episodes, bonus content, panels, workshops, free merchandise, and much more. Just head over to patreon.com slash coffee and cocktails podcast and subscribe today. Otherwise, we'd like to give a shout out to our newest patrons, Anise S. and David M. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the 35th episode of Coffee and Cocktails. I'm your host, Dr. Ann Wand. This month for our Controversies and Contraband series, we have the pleasure of talking with Australia's favorite ancient historians and hosts of the Partial Historians podcast, Dr. Petta Greenfield, also known as Dr. G, and Dr. Fiona Radford, or Dr. Rad, who will be talking with us today about Roman sexuality in Pompeii's secret cabinet. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Well, as per usual, we'll start off by having you tell us what drink you're having for the show, followed by a little bit about yourself. Peta, would you like to start? I would love to start. Um, I would love to tell you that I'm having a Negroni because that is my beverage of preference. Ooh, but nice. because I know I have to think about lots of things to do with Roman sexuality and sex, <laughs> I'm actually drinking water. So I apologize. The irony. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and yourself, Fiona, what are you having? I am having an herbal tea, and that is because I am allergic to alcohol, but I'm having a very oh, fancy man. herbal tea, which is filled with vanilla and beetroot and rose and hibiscus, so it's pretty nice. That's quite swanky. It's more exciting than my instant coffee that I'm having this morning. <laughs> cool. Well, I thought just to sort of um, dive into this, because when I initially got in contact with you, I'd listened to several of your episodes, and I was trying to think about... You know, what would be quite, I don't know, maybe spicy or a bit different. And I know that your earlier episodes had focused quite a bit on sexuality in Rome, which was so fascinating in terms of like the concept and then of of what is sexuality and also the idea that, you know, our modern Western thinking, we impose our own views onto the past, which is like a big no-no from a historian perspective and also from an anthropological perspective. So I thought, you know, I'll start doing some research. And the more research I did, the more I realized I was going down a very deep and significant rabbit hole that I might not crawl out of. So I really had to like limit my reading for the show. Otherwise, I'd just be gone for weeks. But I'd be curious to know from the two of you, because you guys have been studying about, you know, the classics in ancient Rome for such a long time. What initially got you interested in that era of history? I think I really was drawn to looking at the late Republic and the early Empire of Rome because it was filled with such vivid characters. And I really love the historical accounts from that period. So I just love Tacitus. And that's what really got me hooked all the way back in high school. Wow. Who's, and who's Tacitus? Could you tell me a bit about that individual? Yeah, absolutely. So Tacitus wrote uh, a few different things, but only a couple of his works have survived to us in any degree of, you know, um, complexity, I suppose. And I really loved reading the annals that he wrote, which was all about the Julio Claudian emperors, because he's just so sarcastic and so negative, and I loved every minute of it. <laughs> 
Ah, that sounds great. Sounds like a fun yeah. day. Uh, Peta, how about yourself? Yeah, I feel like I got here by a really circuitous route. I, I really started my ancient history degree being really firmly pro-Greece. And I was like, I'm going to be an ancient Greek historian and You're that's gonna what I'm going to do. And yeah, it was a, I, I was just really enamored by them. And then I got into my first year Roman history lecture mm. and had the absolute privilege uh, to be taught by Tom Hillard, who is legendary at the University of Macquarie for the way that he engages with students. And it was just amazing. And all of a sudden I was like, no, Rome's where it's at. That's what I need to do. And yeah. then I was on the back foot because I was more well-versed in Greece than I was in Rome. And I was like, I've got a lot of catching up to do now. Yeah. But it does seem like, and we can get, maybe get into this a little bit, that there's quite a lot of similarities between ancient Greece and ancient Rome in some respects, especially within in reference to the topic today. So maybe you could bring in a little bit of ancient Greece into this as well, if you think it's appropriate. Oh, boy. Work. Oh, no, I wouldn't dream of it. <laughs> Okay, we'll, we'll see we'll see how it goes wink wink nudge nudge um, but yeah let's just dive into the first question so roman sexuality let's just like throw it out there hey um how did roman sexuality differ to modern day western concepts of sexuality and what we understand sexuality to be and can you give us some examples yeah for sure so I think the first big difference is this idea of sexuality itself. We have this concept of sexuality and we really have it bound up from a Western perspective with identity and it's really mm. clear. And I think there's been a really big shift in perhaps the last 20 years, which I think might parallel the development with the internet of widening out the scope of how we understand sexuality and where people might sit along that spectrum and how fluid that is. And all of that is kind of amazing and new and different, really different from the way that the ancient Romans thought about this kind of thing. So neither the Greeks, brought in the Greeks, oh. neither the Greeks nor the Romans had a fixed term for that was equivalent to our idea of sexuality. Okay. But what they have is they have a whole range of terms for sexual acts. So they're pretty across what you could do. And we have this amazing compilation of this from a guy called Adams who wrote in 1982 a book called The Latin Sexual Vocabulary. And it is like this really significant text where you can go and look up just about any Latin term that's related to sexual activity in any way, and it will give you a rundown of what that might be and where you might find some more material on it. So the Romans are really interested in sex, but they don't tend to think about themselves in terms of sexuality. The thing that they're more interested in is this sort of concept of power within their society and how that maps on to the way that they engage in sex acts so mm. for romans society is like really quite stratified and you've got male citizens at the top and just about everybody else in various degrees sitting below them and it is those citizen males who have the most free to a certain extent way of engaging with sex they have a really specified role um, and they get to be what is known as the sort of the penetrator, 
as it were. <laughs> Such a so you could, yeah, you Sounds could find like yourself in a pre- Schwarzenegger film. I am the penetrator. <laughs> I am the penetrator. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, and so this idea, I mean, it, it has problems as well, particularly if you think about it, everybody has various ways of engaging with their sexual selves. And so if you were a citizen male, and you were raised in this idea that this was the way that you had to do sex, but that wasn't the way that you preferred to do sex, that also became a problem for you. Mm. Um, You could be criticised quite severely uh, for the way that you engaged in sex if it wasn't within the really strict demarcation of being in that powerful position because they correlated the powerful position with being the penetrator. Wow. Everybody has rules that you have to follow. <laughs> yeah. Everyone has rules. Yeah. yeah. I mean, cause one of the things I found when I was doing like all this reading on, you know, sex and um, it, it was interesting in that, I mean, it was interesting for a lot of reasons, but the fact that, um, you know, in my mind, I just assume like you could do whatever you wanted you just do whatever you wanted, do whoever you wanted, and <laughs> then come to find that actually it's almost like a straight jacket in some respects. And that just because there was what seemed to be, again, my Western modern day perception of like, yeah, it's like a free for all. And then to find that actually um, if you do the wrong person in the wrong way, you could get in trouble legally. Um, I found quite interesting. And I thought, you know, is there is there even somebody who's like, you know, I'm really happy with my current relationship. I just like to keep it as it is. And then come to find that like, that would be possibly crazy or preposterous that you didn't have a plethora of other people that you were also getting to know. I mean, is is that... Do you think that that could have been a problem if you were like very content in your relationship or was that even possible? They don't really necessarily talk about it too much. Like those sorts of, if we're thinking about like a Roman marriage, for instance, it's never predicated on a romantic attachment. It's it's more of a political construction. So if you were satisfied within the context of that, that's not necessarily a problem. Um, but it also, nobody would bat an eye if that husband were to go out on the town and to find other sexual partners, as long as he was doing it in a way that meant that he was still in the power position while he engaged in those behaviours. Yeah, it's I a think that it's a very different also, story for women. Yeah, I think it's also important to note as well that obviously a lot of the information that we have about marriage and sexual relations, it does tend to focus on what was important for the important people in society. We obviously know a little bit less about the sex lives of those further down the scale. I mean, they they do come up where you have some information, but a lot of this, what should you be doing? What shouldn't you be doing? It's obviously very important for the people that are at the top of the social structure. Okay. Which I think sort of leads us into this this next question about, you know, gender roles. And I put brackets around gender roles because I'm very aware now 
Gender roles are not really a thing. We can talk about that a bit more. Uh, but one of the things in uh, this really interesting book I read, uh, edited volume I, you guys had suggested called Roman Sexualities, it states that when it came to sexual activity in ancient Rome, any woman who enjoyed sex was by definition abnormal or masculine. Does <laughs> this suggest that when it came to sexual pleasure that it was only afforded or allowed for men? I think this is a tricky question to answer because, again, what we've got as what is ideal in the literature and what was actually happening in reality were possibly very different things. And it's obviously hard to know exactly what we're dealing with here. Clearly, women in Rome did have sexual desire and acted on it. We have historical examples of women doing this. We know that sometimes men got very upset about this. So clearly, there was a reality where women were experiencing this. I think that really probably what was happening in reality is that obviously male sexual pleasure was always prioritised, I think. That was always the most important part. And they were freer to act on desire than women were supposed to be. Um, certainly, if you do look at what was meant to be the ideal within those, as you say, those gender roles using our flesh rabbits, <laughs> if we look at that, certainly women were there to be penetrated. They were there to be in a passive role. And, and that's that's the, the main thing that they're doing for their husband. It's not really about what they feel or don't feel. But at the same time, we do also have these mentions in literature where men don't want to be having sex with someone who's not into it at all. So it's kind of like the men... You say that about anybody though, right? <laughs> yeah, well, that's just <laughs> it. I mean, I think... You're like, Meh. Yeah, I think it's like men almost don't know what they want. Like they do want a woman who is in her proper place which would mean in the passive role and therefore being penetrated. But at the same time, they also obviously want to have, you know, enjoyable sexual experience. And that's probably not going to be a woman just lying there like a starfish going, do what you need to do, get it over with. <laughs> I got an appointment <laughs> at five, hurry up. Exactly, exactly. I think really what they were probably focused on is that, women were considered to be full of desire. Uh, they were sort of uncontrollable in the sense that their emotions could often, you know, get, get them into trouble, get other people into trouble, cause societal issues. So all of the chaos that was within inside a woman needed to be properly controlled. And that control obviously had to come from a man. So again, we come back to those, it's, it is all about that power dynamic that uh, Dr. G mentioned before. So women needed to be properly controlled. Their sexual desires need to be properly controlled. And I think therefore realistically what they wanted was a woman whose sexual desire was properly channeled into her marriage. You know, so it, it was obviously acceptable for her to feel a connection with her husband because she's supposed to support him. She's supposed to bear his legitimate children. So to a certain extent, there's like a moderate level of desire that I think would have been acceptable and maybe even obviously enjoyed. But it just had to be very carefully regulated because if you don't keep an eye on those women, those ladies, they will get up to no good. And the perfect example of that is, of course, always Messalina, the empress of 
Claudius, who was one of the Julia Claudian emperors, she her sexual desire what is represented as being like on crack. It's out of control. She she can't be satisfied. And that is a bit of a commentary on the fact that Claudius is not keeping control of her properly. He's not keeping control of his household properly. And therefore, how can he possibly be keeping control of the political scene, the empire? So it's all about that control, those power dynamics. They need to be in place. Otherwise, bad things happen for Rome. Ah, So if you can't control your woman, then how can you control society? Yeah, yeah, and this, this fits into a, definitely fits into how the literature p- portrays these things as well. Like we certainly see women exhibiting desire in moments where the criticism is being leveled at the man involved. But yet, I feel like this is still a common motif. Yeah, I'll be honest. <laughs> I'm Welcome to the there. foundation of patriarchy. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, the, you're, you're absolutely right in that it's definitely the idea that a woman who is seeking out like an active role somehow in her sexual life is somehow abnormal, undesirable, and there is a masculine edge to that. But I kind of feel like some of that is coming through male anxieties in literature about keeping control, making sure that Rome is on the right path. <laughs> Having said that, we also see some really interesting things come through in Latin poetry. And there is a moment where Ovid talks about how the ultimate sexual union is the one where you climax together. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so it kind of depends on this. I'm not going to disagree with the guy. (laughs) It kind of depends on who you're reading because, yeah, if you look at the, if you look at the kind of poetry, obviously what they're writing about is something quite different. If you look at people who are writing histories and biographies, they are potentially writing for didactic purposes or to make a commentary on particular people and particular political situations and therefore they're perhaps more likely to take this more traditional view. But when you look at what might actually be happening in relationships, it's obviously a different story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think about this as totally random. And if my mom's listening, sorry, mom, it's what are you going to do? <laughs> um, but I remember years ago, I was taking a government class and the the government teacher was talking about a list of rules in all 50 states in the U.S. that hadn't been modified. And of course, the one rule that we <laughs> that I remembered was that apparently in the state of Virginia, where I grew up, it was, and I don't know if they've changed it now, illegal to have oral sex. And I was like, huh, a lot of people are going <laughs> to go to jail. <laughs> Whether or not well, they it's funny you should it, mention that. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> it's funny you should mention that because oral sex is definitely something that the Romans seem to have a bit of a weird relationship yeah, with. Could we talk about that just a little bit? Because I thought that was really strange. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, technically, technically the most disgusting act that you could perform as a man, a male citizen in particular, would be oral sex on a woman. And that's because it is so degrading. It's almost like you are taking you're taking a role that you're not supposed to take. And, and again, it always comes back to, this is why it's so hard, I think, sometimes for us to wrap our head around what's going on in the sex lives of Romans. It's really not about gender so much for them. You know, it's not really so much about 
is a man having sex with another man. It's not so much about is a woman having sex with another woman. Um, it, although obviously there are elements of that, but it's really about who is in the power position and who is powerless, who is considered to be the superior, who is considered to be the inferior. And so it's all about, it is always about those sort of power dynamics when they're talking about the sexual acts that could be performed. And so I think that's why they have a particular hang up about oral sex, particularly oral sex with a woman, because it's just about as humiliating for a man as it could possibly be. Yeah. And wasn't it, I remember reading that um, when it came to women having sex with each other, that somehow like the Roman, male Roman full citizen couldn't wrap their head around it. And they were like, well, one of them has to have a massive clitoris. And I was like, I think that sounds like a disorder. <laughs> but they're like, she has to be because she, some, one of them has to be the penetrator. And I was like, well, I don't know. But I mean, I don't know if that's even talked about much because I mean, it was usually, it just seemed like it was more about the men, obviously, than it was about female relations. I mean, it's obviously technically possible. Like it, I mean, in the spectrum of the way genitalia presents, you can definitely have uh, quite large um, clitorises. But is that what's happening in those situations? I think that's that's more likely to be the Roman male imagination. Um, yeah. But I would I would say to further that point that Dr. Rad was making. I'm going to maybe slightly disagree and suggest that gender ooh. might be, ooh, I know, controversy, uh, might be actually quite significant in a case where we're talking about something like oral sex because part of the issue with the way that the Romans think about these things is uh, masculine is aligned with this idea of power and anything that's in a receiving position to be penetrated is also considered effeminate at the same time. And the ultimate effeminate position to inhabit is to be female. And yeah. so then to perform oral sex on a woman is to take the very extreme end of sort of submitting yourself in terms of your power to the heightened form of effeminacy. Huh. And by doing that, you actually start to from a Roman perspective, start to lose your masculinity. It's, it starts to have an effect on the way that you're going to be perceived by others in terms of your own manliness to have done that thing. Huh. And that's a problem for Rome as a state. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think it's more that it's not like how we would conceive of it where it seems unlikely that in Rome you had to conceive of yourself as someone who only had sex with men or only had sex with women. Whilst there may very well have been people that felt that way or practised sex that way, it just wasn't the way that we're doing it now where you kind of have to define yourself as, as being my sexuality is about the gender that I have sex with. That's, that's kind of so important, I think, these days. And, you know, pronouns and all that kind of stuff, those sorts of conversations that we're having now, whereas in Rome, I don't think it's as much about, well, I only have sex with this gender, but it is about the power position that you take and how active you are. And absolutely, totally agree. If you are taking the active role, you're taking the masculine role. 
And that's what men are supposed to be doing if they're male citizens. Yeah, because I, I know that um, one of the readings talked about how if we were to look at it in terms of gender and gender relations, that there would be this assumption that all of ancient Rome was bisexual. And in actuality, there were no such terms for homosexuality, bisexuality, or even heterosexuality. Instead, as you mentioned, being the active or passive participant seemed to be the structural core of Roman and Greek sexuality. So um, in terms of these binary categorizations, um, with regards to sex, how does one's political standing in ancient Rome relate to these active and passive roles? Well, as we were talking, oh, sorry. <laughs> no, no, you go. I'm just, I'm just Ming. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think as we were talking about that idea of the masculine active role is what a male citizen is supposed to be practicing. It, it is a part of his masculinity uh, as a man, as a Roman man. And it's also part of his right as a male citizen to not have his body be violated Mm-hmm. So his his body is meant to be kind of an impenetrable fortress, <laughs> which I, I feel like I'm talking about Superman as I talk about this I or something like that. I think wanted to be Superman, let's be honest. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they that, have that, little that, cape, sort of. <laughs> yeah, that's what's meant to be happening, I think. And as I say, that people being in their proper place is seen as being important for the smooth and harmonious functioning of the Roman state. So that is seen as being important. But again, as I say, what people actually got up to behind closed doors, I mean, who knows? But basically people who are, say, slaves or people who are seen as in pharma or being without proper standing in Roman society, their body is not protected in the same way. As, as that of a, a male or a female citizen is. And so they are able to be treated much worse. And that's not just in a sexual sense, but they, they're, not really, they're not really given the same protections as someone who is a citizen. And so there's no such thing as raping a slave. They are able to be used in any way that is seen fit. They have no such protection. And just in the same way that a male citizen is not supposed to be beaten, but a slave can be beaten. So it is, again, about power dynamics, I think, within the Roman state in a way that's not just sexual, but it is that has an element to it, yeah. And I think this can be tied into the concept of agency, like who gets to have agency in the Roman world? And ideally, from a Roman um, perspective, it is only the citizen male that gets to be granted agency in any particular situation. So within the context of the marriage, he has that agency and the matrona does not in terms of what happens in the bedroom. And matrona being the wife, correct? Yes. Yeah. And as things go down that hierarchy, you get even less and less agency. So a matrona is required and part of what's built into the thing for her is that this need to behave in a really particularly chaste way so she's allowed to have this sexual life within the context of it being with her husband in the bedroom and outside of that she has to present in a very modest way but as you go further down there is less 
and less agency. So we find it with enslaved people in particular, we're talking about absolutely no agency, um, but we also find it with freed people as well. So when somebody is emancipated out of slavery, they immediately have to start to form a network for themselves. And usually that network will involve the people that they used to be enslaved to because they, are, they, they have a sort of, it's, it's seen as like they owe something. So it will often be the case that their former master will now become their patron. And part of that requirement to do your due respect to your new patron may be to give up some of your sexual agency there as well. Oh, really? So, yes. So, even though you're emancipated and you're technically a freed person now, that doesn't necessarily bring with it huge amounts of personal agency in some of the ways that you might hope for when we think about that there's concept. A, yeah, there's, there's a bond that really lasts. You're never entirely free from the family that once owned you you and sometimes that might be a good thing as in they might help you set up a business or something but certainly there would probably be some negative side effects to that absolutely so so like potentially sexual favors yep wow wow yeah that's a hard one to wrap my head around <laughs> well when you think about it if if masters are able to have active sex with people who are considered appropriate, which basically means people whose rights can't be violated, where there are no repercussions, you know, for the state or anything like that, that would include enslaved people of either gender. So a master might have already had a sexual relationship of some long standing with a slave and then free them. So it's not like they would necessarily even be establishing a new sexual relationship with that person, although relationships probably too kind a word for it, obviously it's, can't possibly be consented to if it's if it begins you know under slavery or if it begins after slavery but it's through some sort of obligation obviously the idea of consent is just not really there but i it just seems an appropriate word to use but yeah there might have been an existing relationship there and so it might just be the continuation of something along those lines wow i mean it takes biting the bullet to a whole new level doesn't it i mean <laughs> yeah there, and I this mean, plays out in other ways sorry no, go on, please. Um, I was just going to say this plays out in other ways as well. So you mentioned like how does this flow into sort of politics? And we do have, I've got a nice quote from Sallust for you, and he's writing in the last century of the Republic, so sort of like 100 to like 1 BCE. And he's lamenting Rome's rise to power because of the corruption that it has brought with it. And he characterizes this through this idea of the way that roles have changed. And he says, men played the women's role and women made their chastity available. And it's sort of, for them, there's this really intertwined sense of their politics with how they act in terms of their roles and how that feeds into their sexuality as well. Yeah, I think that they, I think they consider that part of the reason why Rome has become such a power by the time people like Sallust are writing, and even beyond that, obviously, because Rome will go to greater heights after Sallust is writing. I think part of the reason for that in their eyes is that Rome is disciplined, tough, 
masculine, you know? And so if you lose that, do you lose everything else as well? Huh. And this is a big thing that Julius Caesar faces, actually. He's accused of being effeminate quite often in the way that he uses his <laughs> gestures. And, oh. yeah, Cicero calls him out on it um, in some of his work. And he's like, you know, how could I be afraid of this political animal when, you know, he arranges his hair so nicely and when he scratches his head with one finger. And so he's presenting himself, it seems, uh, in the way that Cicero is describing it, in perhaps a way that's quite effeminate. And yet uh, Julius Caesar is this major uh, political player and obviously considered in many respects to be highly masculinized. Well, and is this teased? a critique? Is oh, sorry, maybe, maybe we're thinking the same thing. I, I, where, uh, he was said he was a man for all women and a woman for all men. Is that right? Ah, yes. Mm -hmm. The hijinks he got up to in Bithynia. <laughs> Could you tell us a little bit about that? I'd be curious. Ah, uh, yes. So this is that's a famous quote from Suetonius. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, the well, magazine of the ancient world. <laughs> oh, okay, fair enough. <laughs> so yeah, Suetonius does like a good gossip, but certainly Julius Caesar seems to be willing to pay what play whatever role is required in order to get himself into situations and out of them as well. And it's this adaptability that he demonstrates that puts other Romans offside. And it's almost as if he's sort of maybe flying in the face of expectation. But we also have to keep in mind that this might also be the sorts of things that his enemies are saying about him to bring his masculinity into question. Huh. I mean, that's... And, and this is a common thing. Yeah, this is a common thing, particularly when we get into this period. It's often a way to attack someone is to somehow impugn the sexuality of themselves or their, their families, particularly their women. It's often a route to attack someone, to, to call into question their own masculinity via their sexual practices or to call into question their political reputation by challenging the reputation of their family members, particularly, you know, sisters, wives, and that sort of thing. I mean, so it's a common happens. route to take. Let's be honest. It does still happen. It just, it just seems to be so common in Rome. And therefore, sometimes it can be hard to know what's, what's actually happening. Like, are people actually getting up to these sorts of things behind closed doors? Or is it actually just a way of, you know, <laughs> flinging mud, basically? Hmm. I mean, I, I think the idea of Julius Caesar, assuming this is a possibility, I like the idea of him playing the, and I, I use the bunny ears, you know, the woman's role or the men's role as a, a power maneuver. Like, I think that's quite bold if that's actually the case to be like, well, it works and I'm getting what I want. I'm Julius Caesar. I'm JC. So... <laughs> I don't know that he was quite at that point when this was supposed to be happening. <laughs> like Tim Vision in my head, he's on yeah. the marble, you know, throne of some sort, scratching his hair with really nice locks. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I'd love I'd love the idea of seeing like a Cat Julius Caesar, like bring back the Carry On films where he's like, "Yoohoo, Cicero!" Hey, hey, hey! <laughs> <laughs> hey, girlfriend. Yeah, exactly. Um, well. Kind of sidetracking a bit from from good old JC. Um, there 
is kind of like a segue to all of this talk about sexuality and ancient Rome. And uh, one of the things we talked about before we started, you know, putting together this episode is uh, you had mentioned about how you'd really like to talk about Pompeii's secret cabinet. And in my head, I was thinking like Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I was like, I have no idea what that is. <laughs> and so then again, I went down another rabbit hole. And if I can give the listeners just a brief description and then please throw in your knowledge. Um, this secret cabinet um, is when, and I think it was, was it seven, uh, 18th century, when they started doing some excavations of Pompeii and realized as they were pulling stuff out of the ground that there was a host of penises and all sorts of sexual <laughs> items that their brains just were not expecting. And it kind of snowballed into this, oh my gosh, this must have been brothel city. But in actuality, no, again, imposing your own views onto some society from long ago, there's more to it than meets the eye. So could you tell us a bit about a, maybe a little bit about this excavation or the several excavations, and then how they led to this uh, secret cabinet and why it was so historically secret. Yeah, definitely. So obviously there have been excavations and things discovered from all over the Roman Empire before Pompeii and Herculaneum were rediscovered, if they were ever forgotten, but until they were excavated, obviously. But I think that when people found these erotic pieces from the ancient world before, they were perhaps a little bit more dispersed or they were found in certain settings where I guess it maybe made a little bit more sense to people. Like, for example, maybe it seemed like a luxurious villa. And so they're like, okay, well, this is somebody's holiday house. So sure, you know, have fun. Let your hair oh, down. You Whatever of the day. Yeah, exactly. So I guess it was perhaps a little bit more dispersed. But obviously the thing that keeps people coming back to places like Pompeii and Herculaneum is that it's not just the odd villa or the odd piece that's managed to survive we are talking about entire towns that can now be excavated in a much more holistic way. So you can get perhaps more of an idea of what life was actually like. And these were also not super wealthy places. Like they did okay for themselves, but they weren't super rich locations. So this is not lifestyles of the rich Monaco. and famous. This isn't yeah, no, this is not that at all. And so the more that they started to do these detailed excavations and the more that they uncovered, the amount of material I think that they discovered and also sometimes the nature of it was, I think, a bit disconcerting to people because by this stage, Rome has been taken as this model, you know, which is what people base so much of their identity on across the world, you know, whether it's their system of government, whether it's their literature, you know, whatever it is, whether it's the people like Julius Caesar, a lot of those people have been held up as being the beacon. You know, this is what we all aspire to. This is the basis of our culture. We are the inheritors of Rome. You know, a lot of people see themselves like that. And so looking at sex in this way, all this erotic material seemed just so deeply shocking. But what we have to remember, of course, is that when Pompeii and Herculaneum were covered up by Vesuvian material, 
it's before Christianity has taken off in a big way. And so sex and the depictions of sex, of course, they're going to be different. They're not going to be tinged with this prudery, I think, that comes through once you have Christianity being a huge influence on the way that people conceive of sex. And it's not that the Romans didn't have their own morality. I mean, we've just been talking about that. They have their own sense of what's allowed and what's not allowed. But what they think is acceptable is probably not what people were expecting when they see, oh, okay, so in your living room you have this gigantic piece of pornography. (laughs) And and wasn't it um, because of these excavations that the term pornography became solidified during the Victorian era, is that correct? Apparently, that's what I read. No, that's actually, that's very possible. I actually had not read that before, but that is entirely possible. Yeah, there was a really, I watched this really great talk, and I'm going to just throw it out here now, assuming I can find it. Um, But yeah, there was um, a talk about how pornography as a term actually became solidified because the Victorians were like, oh, my days. And um, (laughs) it, it, it was as a result of, of finding all of these delightful pieces. In fact, the talk was called The Archaeology of Sin, Pompeii's Pervy Art by Isabel Samaras. And she, uh, she has a YouTube video, which I'm happy to send you a link to and put in the show notes. Um, but yeah, it, it's a result of that and the secret cabinet, and which we'll also dive into a bit. But um, there, were, in terms of, of these pieces, um, could you tell us a bit about the sorts of pieces that were found and then why they sort of eventually got sequestered into a part of a museum for a very, very long yeah, time? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. So there's a whole range of things which I suppose we would term, you know, sexual or erotic, which come out. Whether the Romans actually meant them in that way is obviously it's pretty dubious, to be honest. I mean, there certainly are a lot of fallacies around, but I don't think that's because they weren't pointing the way to brothels and it's not because the Romans Follow were the super penis. horny. It's this way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, just this way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's what a lot of people think or get told, but that's not really what it was about. The phallus meant a lot more than sex. It is about uh, good fortune. It is about protection from, you know, anything bad happening to you. And so that's why you sometimes see a lot of phalluses around. So there's, there's that sort of stuff. But there, then there is material which is genuinely highly erotic. There's no getting around that. So perhaps one of the most notorious pieces is this particular sculpture of uh, Pan having sex with a goat. And it's really explicit. You know, yeah, you, you're like, really watching ooh. the insertion of the penis. Yeah, it's really, and, and the eye contact between the two subjects, like you do look at it and you're like, my God, that's a good piece of art, but Jesus Christ. <laughs> and it's so well preserved. That's the other thing. It, it's not like they, you know, bits and bobs and then they glue it together. Like it's like, oh, oh cool. <laughs> Yeah, like, what do you do with this? Yeah, I guess it's the nature of the material that was made from. But even things like frescoes and wall paintings, we have a lot of really quite, to our minds, I think, full-on paintings of sex. I mean, there are paintings where you can literally see both of the parties are fully naked and you can see the man's erect penis and the woman is literally like in the process of like lifting her leg up to like get on there. And so it's really, it is actually 
like it's almost Playboy like an material <laughs> manual. You're like, oh, so that's how it's done. Okay, got it. Thanks. That's what a lot of people think that these things are, but I don't think that that's probably the case. But but certainly, yes, it is full on, even to a modern viewer. I mean, we might be sitting here going, yeah, we've advanced so far. We talk about sex all the time. We have pornography at the click of a button but the romans were also full-on in their own way because they just don't have this modesty that you that we might expect perhaps well wasn't it it, as well i remember watching about how um if you if you if some of these houses if they had like super erotic like hey artwork that it was assumed that the owner of the property had really good taste it was like well often yeah i think yeah. Nice. Yeah. You've got a fellatio no, I, painting. He must have really good taste. Like I just, you know, like, well, I, I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I think that definitely a lot of the artwork that we see where sex is involved, not all of it, but a lot of it has mythological elements and mythology was certainly considered to be tasteful. You know, okay. to just be like, yes, I know this. I know the story. I know the story. In fact, I know it so well, I've got it painted on my living room. And so I think there is an element of that to it as well. So, for example, there are depictions of Leda and the swan. So sex between a human woman and an animal. Although, of course, the animal is just a god in disguise. As but there are there are depictions of that sort of stuff. So there are elements of, of mythology, which I think are also part of the, the good taste aspect of that. Wasn't there one deity, it's, his name starts with a P, and of course I'm drawing Ah, yes. And he's, Priapus. He, yeah, and it's like you'd have him in your garden because he like helps with fertility, but then he's also helps with prosperity, and he's got a very endowed member Proudly yeah. That's a giant schlong. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Priapus is, is really particular because he sort of represents the Roman double-edged sword, if you like, when it comes to the phallus, because the Romans at some point do take on the Greek ideas that modesty and what they call, what the Greeks call sophrosyne or moderatio in the Latin, which is like this sort of like temperate of modesty and and being moderate in all of your habits also equates physically with having not so big a member. And often what we see with the depiction of phalluses in ancient Rome is they're often quite large um, and... They almost look like dog bones, I've noticed. Yeah. (laughs) They go for the curve. Yeah. Um, You know, it's possible. Why not go there? And Priapus sort of is at the the very end of that spectrum of uh, size and is considered Mm -hmm. an unruly and uncontrollable kind of god. Um, He's dominated by that physical desire and so always depicted with an erection often running around and in literature attempting to seduce people who do not want his attention. And that's made <laughs> very clear. <laughs> and he that often fails. Me, I'd be like, Mm-mm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, thank you. Um, head off. And this idea, and I think part of what we see at Pompeii is that sort of dominance of the things that are oversized. And there would be implicit critique in some of those representations. And in a lot of those relate to 
um, Dionysus and the Bacchic revelry and we see Mynads and we see uh, sort of copulations with half man, half goats and satyrs, that sort of thing. And these are things that are, are not necessarily things that you want to be engaged in. So they are kind of titillating because they're the things to not do as well. Yeah. I don't know. I yeah. wouldn't want to do a goat. <laughs> I don't think anybody really wants to. <laughs> yeah. So you're not yeah, in so Pan's camp. <laughs> no, definitely not. Yeah. Yeah. So basically the more that they start uncovering this stuff, some of which is kind of disturbing to their sensibilities in terms of what it depicts, people start to come and see it, you know, as part of the grand tour, you know, when they're visiting the area. They're like, oh, I'll go and see what's going on at the excavations, hip, hip. And it starts to invite jokes about the morality of the current day rulers at the time when the excavations were going on. So this was often, uh, you know, the family of the Bourbons and they didn't take too kindly to that. They're like, whoa, 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 just because I'm excavating this stuff doesn't mean that me and my family need to be lumped into this camp. Were they you know- like eating sandwiches or something? I read that they were like sitting there having a picnic and then they pull out these phalluses and then the, you know, Zara was like, oh, my children got to cover their eyes and they close the whole thing down. And yeah. And so there started to be the idea that maybe we should keep the most offensive pieces locked away. So it's partly to do with how the people who are ruling over the area where Pompeii and Herculaneum are located feel about their reputation being tied up with what's coming out of the excavations because they obviously want to get praise for it. They don't want to, they don't want to suffer because they're excavating. You pulled but I think it's also, you're out. Yeah, exactly. That's right. You, <laughs> you just, you just can't have that many penises. Nobody can have that many penises. Uh, and but it's also partly to protect, I think, the image of Rome. I think somehow there is this feeling that oh, this kind of tarnishes the way that people might feel about Rome. And so I think there's a bit of that going on. But, of course, as with anything, once you start locking things up, it just makes them all the more desirable for people to see. So there's always been this kind of idea that, well, sure, they might be locked away in private collections or private rooms, but if you know the right people, you might be able to get access and see them. And so... Yeah, basically, as time goes on, gradually, there is this idea that, okay, we are going to keep these pieces separate because they are very explicit. They're not really suitable for women and children to see in particular. And so it's Francesco I who decides that, you know what, let's definitely keep this stuff in a separate area. And only people who are of mature age and proven morality are allowed oh, to go in there because white men. Yeah, exactly. They'll be immune. <laughs> They'll be immune. You know, somehow, at some point in their life, they received a vaccination against pornography, and they will not be corrupted by this material. <laughs> not at all. Yeah, and so they started having this cabinet of obscene objects as part of the Royal Bourbon Museum. And it wasn't even always just material from Pompeii and Herculaneum that was put in there. Sometimes it was other art that was considered to be, you know, ooh, just too erotic for words. My days. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Uh, But... We, we have enough information to testify that there are a lot of permits that started getting issued. So a lot of people are still able to get in and see this. And, of course, it's the they, Italian they, way, though. Let's be yeah. honest. It's like, yeah, exactly. oh, yeah, yeah. sure. I, uh, Dr. Francesca, you're fine. Get in. Yeah. And so as time goes on, it starts to be something that's thrown 
against the Bourbon regime, showing them as being like, you know, culturally backwards, that they have this whole system going on, that it's ridiculous. And people start talking about, you know, with the political situation that develops in Italy in the middle of the 1800s with, you know, revolution rearing its head and then you've got Garibaldi, people start saying they will open this material to, for the public to see because it's you will liberty, freedom. Exactly. You will look those penises in the eye. <laughs> <laughs> you will confront this material because that is your right. And so, again, it, it kind of goes kind of goes back and forwards a little bit. But essentially it does not become something that is fully accessible and open to the public until really the 2000, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and and then I I read that women weren't even allowed, I mean, for those who had the special permits and yada, yada, weren't even allowed to see it until the 1980s. I was like, have you seen any of the movies coming out of the U.S.? I mean, it's like, (laughs) I mean, I just like... I, I it blows my mind. Blows my mind. It, it is crazy that yeah, in spite of all this political back and forwards about should it be open, shouldn't it? Who should have access? I don't know. There's a lot of toing and froing, and it's not fully open until the 21st century, which is pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think now the age restriction is 14 as long as you're accompanied by an adult. And yeah, well, I must like admit, school children as well. Like, hey, yeah, you know. Well, I must admit, one of the things I sometimes have to teach about as a nature history teacher who does teach about Pompeii is you have to talk about leisure activities and social structure and all these kinds of things, and and that does lead to talk about this kind of material because to not talk about it would be to leave out something that was obviously very important and central to the Romans' lives, just as sex is very central and important to our lives today. Well, and it's not like you have to do a demo. I mean, you know, they already have patents for that. So, yeah, absolutely. More. (laughs) Well, I, yeah, go on. Sorry. No, 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 no. Sorry. Yeah. Well, so I was going to say, speaking of demos, um, when they were kind of doing all these excavations and we talked about how there was this assumption initially that, you know, every building was a brothel and then you come to find that these, you know, penises are actually supposed to be kind of like uh, lucky horseshoes that would sort of be put up above people's doors. Um, the best description I heard was um, a Nacho uh, little documentary clip. And uh, the guy said, he showed a picture of this giant phallus. And he said, you know, you might be, you know, you wouldn't be wrong to assume that this was a brothel. But in fact, it was for a bakery. And <laughs> supposed to, um, you know, encourage prosperity and good luck and potentially make the bread rise. Yuck, 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 yuck. So... <laughs> Within all of that, obviously, within Pompeii, there were two um, that we know of so far, um, prominent brothels. The most kind of, I guess, famous one that we know of right now is what was referred to as the Lupinar or the Wolf's Den. And I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about the sort of people who worked there. Sure. So... You're absolutely right to highlight that there has been a lot of speculation about how many brothels there actually were in Pompeii. And part of that is because once all that erotic material started coming out and started to become more widely known, Pompeii started to get this reputation as, oh, well, it was a really sinful place. And that's probably why it got destroyed by a volcano. They deserved it. They had it coming. (laughs) 
Yeah. And that's still something that we see. That's still something that we see in the way people think about it, that that Pompeii was this super decadent, incredibly sinful place. That somehow it was on another level, oh, even though it's just a very, it's a very nondescript average kind of place. You know, it's not that, it's not that poor. It's not that wealthy. It's just like your average town, but it still somehow has that reputation, I think, in the popular imagination. Um, so certainly I think people were expecting to see brothels everywhere yeah. <laughs> because that fits with the, that, that sort of an image. But certainly there has been a lot of argument about which buildings we can identify as brothels and which we can't. And to be honest, with the academics that I've been following, I would even say that there's really only one that we can okay. be fairly confident about. But certainly there aren't lots. However, prostitution was going on in lots of different settings. A brothel wasn't the only setting in which prostitution could you had, be like, happening. Freelancers, didn't you, with their own kind of separate rooms and stuff like that? Oh, and there'd be people who also were, I would imagine, desperate enough to be doing it just outdoors in, you know, a little archway where they could just pull a client in, do the deed, and off you yeah. go. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the trick, obviously, with talking about people that might have been in this sort of an industry in Pompeii is that they're considered to be right down the bottom of that social hierarchy that we were talking about before. So not only are they poor, but these are people who are most likely also slaves, although they didn't have to be. There would have been some free people working there as well, but there would have been a lot of slaves in this industry. They would have potentially been foreigners, we can tell from some of the names that are being used that that's probably fairly likely that there are foreigners involved. And so these are not Roman citizens that we're often talking about. And so they are right down the bottom, even if they were citizens, though, and they were just poor and desperate by doing what they do, by engaging in prostitution, they are making themselves in pharma. They are without reputation, without standing. They are doing something despicable because they are earning a living through the use of their bodies in a public and obviously quite disgusting way in the Roman way of, of looking at things. That's not to say, though, that the Romans look at prostitution in quite the same way, I think, that people these days might look at prostitution. Uh, but certainly it meant that the people in that industry would have had very little protection because they had they are seen as sort of taking themselves out of that equation. If, if, if they had a choice, that's assuming that they had a choice at all. So they're not, we don't obviously have anything that's really written by them. We don't have a diary. We don't have letters written by the women and the men who work there because it's important to acknowledge that men were also prostitutes in Pompeii and they also presumably would have worked uh, in this brothel. As far as we can tell, there are traces of that being left. Mostly what we can say, we, we look at evidence from around the Roman Empire, we look at prostitution in different settings in modern studies and apply that and see what we can, what we can learn from looking at those similar situations. And we also look at sources like graffiti that's been left behind because that very probably was written by some of the people that worked in the brothel, but obviously it doesn't give us a lot and we can't date it and we can't say for certain who wrote what and why. So it's a little bit of a tricky source to deal with, but they're the kinds of things that we're dealing with when we're trying to learn about what their lives would have been like. 
Yeah. Peter, did you want to add something? Um, Do you want to add anything? Not necessarily to the brothels. That's more Fiona's speciality, I would say. <laughs> um, and, and she's certainly more across Pompeii than I am. So I, I think if I said anything, I'd be wading into dangerous territory. Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, I, I am interested in um, how um, the question that you posed to us about, you know, how does... Uh, how does a sex worker deal with an unplanned pregnancy? Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, one obviously... The, yeah, I was going to say, because one of the things that I know that there was a lot of misconceptions um, about the Lupinar um, and that some of the tour guides, um, when they present the information to tourists, they it's almost like they present what they think the tourist wants to hear. Right. You know, they want to hear about the exciting bits. They want well, what they've deemed are exciting bits. And they take away the fact that these were people who were majority of whom came from Greece in the east, um, who were doing this against their will, who were taken as children and then thrown into these horrible conditions. I mean, if you look at the actual Lupinar itself, it's incredibly cramped. It would have been dark. It, went, it was right near the, the, the rooms, the way they were laid out was right next to the toilets, like the latrine. And, you know, they'll they'll show you the, the bits at the bottom and they'll say, oh, it's like going to McDonald's. You just get to pick your order. And then, as you mentioned, Fiona, when you look at the graffiti, it's like, okay, there's like six options here. But according to this graffiti, there's like a whole lot of other options you could choose from. And what they seem to take out completely and this was a discussion I had with a friend of mine recently is, you know, I'm going to guess contraception wasn't really something that was on offer. I mean, I'm sure there were people who could provide some form of, you know, abortion type concoction of some sort, but there had to have been unplanned pregnancies, children who were born out of this profession. And I was just wondering if there was any evidence to suggest, you know, what happened in those situations. I mean, not really. And this is where things get difficult and challenging because our source material so often will give us things that happen to the elites. So, like, our written material is predominantly coming from that citizen perspective. But what their concerns are are very different from the concerns of people who are living in these lives. And these people don't necessarily get a chance to voice what their experiences are like. They don't perhaps don't have the literacy and they certainly don't have the means to produce the evidence that would survive except for those things like those graffiti moments. And so, and I think one of the things that you definitely don't want to gloss over when we're talking about Rome and sex is that they don't have age limits yeah. in a legal way in the same way that we do today. There is almost no protection of children in this regard um, a prostitution isn't illegal. Yeah, yeah. So could you have a citizen children, like, woman, for instance, thrown into this potentially? Yeah. So a citizen woman is considered marriageable at age twelve, and and that's a citizen woman. So if right. we're thinking about um, sex work and children and enslaved children, they're probably going to be younger if that is something that seems like a viable source of income so we're talking about really really tricky historical legacies coming out of these sorts of practices um there's certainly thinking about 
the other side of things like contraceptives and um, things that you can use to bring on abortion, there does seem to be plenty of options. Um, The ancient Romans, yeah, they're not at a loss um, for things to try in this respect. Whether they have access to the ingredients that they need might be more of the question. But certainly one of the big sources we have for this kind of thing is uh, one of my favourite authors, I have to say, for his name. His name is Serenus, uh, but it does look like Soranus, I have oh. to say. Um, so appropriate. So appropriate. Yeah. So appropriate. Uh, and he writes a book called Gynecology. And he's writing in the second, sort of late first, early second century CE. And he basically goes through all types of sort of ways in which you can go about trying to prevent pregnancy uh, or also um, obtain an abortion. And there might be medical ways that you could do that, but there's also a whole bunch of sort of um, pharmaceutical ways that you could approach that. And it's really quite interesting to learn, I think, through that, that the ingredients that are listed in that guide, some of them are do have efficacy we know that they would work um, if put together in the right combination and used in an appropriate way so this knowledge is there in the ancient world who has access to it i'm imagining that for these sorts of things it's often women's business so that also makes it difficult in terms of knowing what might be going on Um, we have so few um written evidences from women um just throughout all of ancient rome so this is probably passed on through an oral tradition for the most part until we get to somebody like serenus who is putting it all down um but yeah there's all sorts of things that you could try um I've got I've got some examples for you yeah, if you like. Please do. I'm like I'm so <laughs> apprehensive. I'm like, yeah, I, I <laughs> what did, what do we offer? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, what's on offer? What's on offer? You turn yeah. up at the pharmacy what can we get? and be yes. like, I've got I think I'm pregnant and I'm pretty sure I don't want to be. What have you got? Yeah. And How about some dung? Let's let's shove some dung up there. See what that does. Yeah. <laughs> the first option is vigorous exercise. Um, so oh. really putting in the hard yards, go for a horse ride. Really shake your body up. Try to shake out the whole thing. Um, you could also use diuretics um, to try and oh. induce your menstrua- menstrual cycle. Just try and a bit of like the morning after pill kind of combo. Okay. Um, laxatives were thought to be potentially useful. If you can push one thing out of yourself, maybe you can push out something else at the same time. Um, but they also uh, talk about the foods that might be useful. Mm. So really pungent foods um, could be eaten, but also, and this is where things get a little bit more interesting, a thing called a a sitz bath, uh, S-I-T-Z. And it's just a, it's a bath basically just for your lower areas. So (laughs) yeah. Yeah. My mom would say, you should have a sitz bath. You'll really be (laughs) for that. It's really relaxing, you know. Uh, pop you Take downstairs into some warm duration. water. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> start, start yourself out. Yeah, yeah. And you can add all sorts of ingredients into these baths, some of which could be quite effective. Um, now, whether they're getting into where you need 
That's another question entirely. Can I ask? I mean, I'm not like looking for a friend. I'm just genuinely curious. <laughs> like what, what sort of things have they found that actually worked? Yeah. So a couple of the ingredients um, that do seem to be, to have efficacy are myrtle and wallflower and also a bean known as the lupine bean, which in its normal form is poisonous, but if prepared in the right way, you can insert into the body as needed. Um, So some tests have shown that um, the constituent ingredients in the lupine beans can produce contractions in pig uteri. So we think it's transferable to the human as well. And I would imagine. We haven't, I don't know that we've done any tests on humans, just yeah, to, just to say, make I don't sure. I don't know if you could really do. It's like, mm, who wants to be the beta test? Not me. No. Yeah. <laughs> no. Probably. But then you not. also think of simple things. You, you've got to also think of the simple things as well, which. I think people would have figured out, and again, with that women's knowledge, you know, older prostitutes probably would have passed it on to younger prostitutes. In that withdrawal is obviously a way that you can try and avoid getting pregnant in the first place. And that, you know, that has a reasonable chance of success, I suppose. I mean, it's obviously, you know, you're going to dodge that so many times. Yeah, so there would have been certain knowledge that would have been passed down, but as, uh, as Peter said, because dealing with these sorts of issues would have been very much women's business. And in this particular setting, it would have been women's business for women in very low down the the social hierarchy. We don't have a lot to go on with that kind of stuff. Wow. I mean, this is the sort of stuff that would like terrify me, you know, like I'd just be worried all the time. Like I'd be, I don't know. Maybe it's just. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's also the, the not so nice idea that potentially if you couldn't get rid of the baby, that maybe that baby might have been exposed in some way. Not necessarily infanticide, but maybe left or given away or something like that. Like there, there is obviously that possibility. You know, we hear stories from the ancient world all the time of children that were left for some reason, Romulus and Remus being very famous examples. Again, it's hard to know any statistics on that about would, would, was that really a likely scenario? And I don't think it would have been happening all the time, certainly not. But there is also that final possibility that the baby would have been gotten rid of somehow, whether it was left out somewhere or whether it was given away or sold or, or whatever. There is a possibility that that could have been a final recourse. Yeah, And I think it's worth noting here that if we're talking about people who are enslaved, the likelihood of an infant that is born into slavery being abandoned is pretty low because really? they're actually a commodity. Exactly. From the perspective they, but they, of the they would also owner. They would also be a slave. So if, if a prostitute who was a slave had a baby, their child is also a slave. So if you could raise that child and you know, put it to work doing odd tasks as soon as possible and then maybe raise it to be working in the brothel as well that is obviously a possibility man that's tough one wrap my head around but yeah interestingly um i don't know how you segue out of that one um but the idea of romulus and remus uh, being raised by a she-wolf that there's actually this idea that the she-wolf is just a metaphor for um the lupinar or the uh, basically being raised by a prostitute which I actually thought was an interesting sort of like full circle 
idea. Do you have any thoughts? Oh, look, on it that? is. It definitely is. Like Rome is so weird in the way that it has these elements of the low in their foundation myths. You know, like something that you'd think that they'd be ashamed of. You know, <laughs> let's not talk about the fact that maybe the potential mother, or at least adoptive mother of Romulus and Remus, was maybe a loose woman, or was maybe an ex-prostitute or practicing prostitute. Who knows? It's so funny that Rome has these elements to their story. And but this is always the thing with Rome because whilst whilst these women and men who worked in the sex industry would have been considered very low, at the same time, they're desirable, right? Yeah. You know, it's like gladiators. Like there's always this like thin line between attraction and disgust in Roman culture where gladiators are despised for the same reason that prostitutes are despised because they make a living with their body in a public way and, and that's disgusting and despicable. But at the same time, they are sexy and attractive and people want to have sex with them. And so there's always this weird juxtaposition, I think, going on inside Roman's head. Like, And you, you think back to what we were talking about before about they want women to be passive, but not too passive. And they, it's just always just like, oh, make up your mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I kind of have like a random question. And I've, I've been, the whole time I've been reading, I just wondered, um, do you think Romulus and Remus uh, were real? No. I, I would love to say <laughs> that they were. <laughs> yeah. But pure we bad, I think. We have a lot of archaeological suggestion that Rome predates that really particular foundation date of 753 BCE. That's not to say that they weren't twins in okay. the mix ruling Rome at some point in time, um, even if it was just for a moment until one killed the other. But is it likely that that's how Rome got founded? I think, I think that's a Probably big not. open question. <laughs> well, you know what? Now it's been answered. I will sleep well at night. <laughs> yeah, cool. but to, well, to, to get back to, sorry, just to get back to the, the brothel for a second there, I just feel like I, I need to mention the, the work of um, Levin Richardson. She's done heaps of work on, on the brothel of Pompeii, and it's really fascinating to read because one of the things that she sort of highlights which taps into what we've been talking about is that the erotic displays that you get on the walls and stuff in in the building that has been identified as the brothel in Pompeii it's actually probably some of the tamer stuff that you find in Pompeii and she's highlighted that it's not a sex menu it's not a case where you'd go up and be like, I want that or I don't want that or anything like that. I'll That's probably not what it was about. Fries. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. It's not that. She's highlighted that it's probably actually meant to be kind of like a calming, reassuring kind of sex artwork because it's it's probably some of the tamer, classier, as in you don't see a lot of like exposed body parts and that kind of stuff like inserting into other parts. Yeah, they also have little bras on. Welcome to our sensual establishment. Yeah, yeah exactly. It and it, it's meant to be something that's quite reassuring for the people that are visiting. It's very heteronormative. It's generally a man, a woman having sex, but kind of in a classy way in that, you know, their their body parts are kind of like on a on a sitcom that you see, like how the sheets just cover the, the right parts or how a leg covers the right parts. And that's what you see when you go into the brothel of Pompeii, because the thing to remember is that the people who were going to the brothel in Pompeii are not rich people. Like if you were really rich, 
you could just have sex with one of your slaves or have a really high-class courtesan who could come to your house directly. You don't need to go out to a brothel. So it's probably meant to be for a much more average person, the brothel of Pompeii. And whilst, yeah, I think it would have been absolutely horrible to work there, whether you were a man or a woman, because like with prostitutes today, you're obviously earning your living in a way that might be objectionable, painful, non-consensual, you're not protected, all of that kind of stuff. There's certainly plenty of evidence of that, of, you know, prostitutes getting robbed and beaten and all that kind of stuff, and that sort of thing. But certainly I think that there would have been an element of, well, there would have been times when things were less busy and maybe there was some bonding that was going on between the people there. It would have been an experience for the people that were going there. So it's meant to be a social experience, I think. So it's meant to be a place where you drink and you chat and you have a nice time. It's not just about flat-out sex. So there would have also been that side to it, which might not have been pleasant for the people who were working there because they might have been pretending, but it might have been pleasant for the people that were visiting there and that might be why they went there in the first place. That's really good. And that and I think that kind of provides more of a a social element that I think is probably missing where it's just assumed you go in, you take your order, you quietly get led to room 3 and then that's that and then it's like exits that way. You know. So, yeah, and no, I don't think so. I think I think that there there is a little bit of evidence that potentially like like if you look at as a modern day sex work there is the potential that people go there because they have a standing sexual relationship with someone, which might be all in their mind because the prostitute has been forced to cultivate a relationship with them. But obviously they need the money for whatever reason, whether it's to avoid physical punishment if they don't earn enough or whether it's to support themselves or whatever it is, they need to earn money. And so they need to foster relationships with clients. And so, and that's a better way of getting out, right? To earn enough money to get out and buy their, you know, buy their freedom or whatever it is that they're looking for. So extra gifts, you know, that, that all obviously helps. So you want to you wanna schmooze your clients and, and build that kind of a relationship with them. And could women actually f- become free? Is that possible? Or is that only for the men? Yeah, men- women could become free. Yeah, men, men tended to age out of prostitution. So generally men were considered to be desirable sexual objects when they were younger and then they aged out much faster than women, which is probably the opposite of what happens in sex work in like a place like Australia. But, yeah, certainly anybody who's a slave can earn their freedom in Rome. And that's where Rome is, is quite different to Greece, I think. There's more opportunity to become free in Rome if you are enslaved than there is in a place like Greece. Right. Wow. Well, we could end up talking for hours, but I have to say, uh, this has been so, so interesting. Genuinely, I've been absolutely fascinated. Um, but for now, I have to say, that's it from us at Coffee and Cocktails with your host, Dr. Ann Wand. I'd like to thank Dr. G and Dr. Rad for joining us at the studio this afternoon. Additional information on today's topic, of which there are many sources I will be posting 
will be available on our website in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, then please remember to like, subscribe, and consider becoming a patron starting at one pound per month. It's support from our patrons that really helps to keep the show going. By becoming a patron, you get access to extra bonus content, patron-only interviews, panels, workshops, and much more. To join, just head over to patreon.com slash coffee and cocktails podcast. Otherwise, that's it for now. Thanks for listening and have a great week.